When we think about system failure, the source of this kind of failure is often complexity, right? So it's when these systems are look more like a web than a line. They're hard to understand. They're hard to draw. You can't sort of sit down in a room with people and list all the ways that something is going to fail ahead of time. You've got to learn from the way the system evolves in real time, the way the system behaves, to understand how it's going to fail. And so when we think about systems failures, we think about it in that context. That was Chris Clearfield. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, and welcome to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Hope you had a great weekend. Mine was action-packed thanks to the Brooklyn Half Marathon. It was... Definitely my slowest time ever for Brooklyn or any half marathon, but nevertheless, it was a great race. I had a wonderful running partner that kept me going. So while it wasn't my fastest, I definitely learned a lot about pacing and overall had a great race. I've been on a two-year decline with my pace as my age increases, and I'm beginning to wonder if there is a correlation, or perhaps I'm just not training as hard as my body starts to age and my system begins to fail. My old ways aren't working. The system I have built requires some fine tuning and recalibrating. And I certainly appreciate this lesson. I really had to dig deep here in this race and overcome some serious mental hurdles I was battling on the course. One thing I remembered while I was running was this amazing book that I had read and today's podcast guest, Chris Clearfield, author of Meltdown. What plane crashes, oil spills, and dumb business decisions can teach us about how to succeed at work and home. This book is all about why our systems fail and what we can do about it. It's definitely a business book. However, you can apply the principles to family, fitness, training, and life. Chris was in town a few months ago visiting from Seattle. We went for a run and then recorded the podcast with today's special co-host, Lori Mazur. You may know Lori from way back when, episode one. She is my partner in life and racing. Lori connected everyone for the podcast and is a huge fan of the book as well, so I thought it would be fun to have her co-host. Okay, let's talk meltdowns. It all began when derivatives trader and commercially licensed airline pilot Chris Clearfield started seeing parallels between the financial crisis and aviation accidents throughout his career. In 2010, When the Deepwater Horizon rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, the inception for the book was sparked. And since then, Chris has been researching and exploring major catastrophes around the world, resulting in his book, Meltdown. Meltdown offers a groundbreaking take on how complexity causes failure in all kinds of modern systems. From social media to air travel, this practical and entertaining book reveals how we can prevent meltdowns in business and in life. Weaving together cutting edge social science 
with riveting stories that take us from the front lines of the Volkswagen scandal to backstage at the Oscars, and from deep beneath the Gulf of Mexico to the top of Mount Everest. Chris Clearfield and co-author Andras Tilsik explain how the increasing complexities of our systems create conditions ripe for failure, and why our brains, they can't keep up. They highlight the paradox of progress. While modern systems have given us new capabilities, they've become vulnerable to surprising meltdowns and even corruption and misconduct. From the Flint, Michigan water crisis to the BP oil spill, from train crashes to medical errors, to an overcooked holiday meal. While at first glance, these events have nothing in common, it turns out they do. By understanding the causes of these failures, we can design better systems, make our teams more productive, and transform how we make decisions at work and at home. On today's episode, Chris shares many of these stories and examples. We also explore his philosophy through the lens of triathlon and family. Meltdown by Chris Clearfield and Andras Tilsik is now available in paperback and of course as an audiobook, which I downloaded and listened to on Audible. As always, thanks for tuning in and all your great feedback on the podcast. I appreciate your direct messages and questions on social. Keep those emails coming. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy. Scroll through the list of Marnie on the Move podcasts on your app, click on write a review, share what you like about the podcast, your favorite episodes, what inspires you, tell your friends to listen, email them a link, post it on your social platforms and tag Marnie on the Move. Overall, spread the love. Also, sign up for our newsletter, The Download. To find out about upcoming events and summits this summer, great deals, offers, and giveaways. Now, on to the conversation. But before we get started, today's episode is fueled by Sun Potion. I am such a huge fan of their super high-quality, organic, tonic herbs, mushrooms, and superfoods. I have been using a variety of their transformational foods and supplements for the past three years. They have been major game-changers for my overall health and wellness. Lately, I have been using the pine pollen and ashwagandha for hormones and balance, chaga for my immune system, and my favorite, cordyceps, for extra energy pre-workout. I simply add them to my coffee or my smoothie every day, and I'm on the move. Head over to their website, sumpotion.com, and use the code MARNIEONTHEMOVE for 10% off. Now, on to the episode. Chris and I just got back from a four-mile run in, what is the weather right now? What do you think it is, like 30 degrees out, 20? Yeah, I, I, it's like 30, you know, quote-unquote feels like 28 or whatever. It was so chilly. It was pretty cold, and we were definitely suffering. Even though I tried to get you to come with me to the gym, but you were like, let's run outside. Let's run outside. But, uh, you were wearing shorts, as I recall. No. Oh, no, he didn't wear oh, shorts on the run. Okay. I was going to say, that's really hardcore. Yeah. Phew. So this is so awesome. Thank you so much for coming over here. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So Chris, in your book, Meltdown, you talk about why our systems fail and what we can do about it. You use great examples of systems and scenarios from aviation and plane crashes to oil spills and dumb business decisions and all of these things to find out from failure how you can teach yourself or learn from failure to succeed in the future at work or career, in life, in general, all of those things. So 
Why do systems fail? That's a great place to start. So the truth is they fail for a ton of different reasons. And with all of our systems today, and we should talk about kind of what we mean by systems. Really, from, from my perspective, a system is anything where the kind of interaction between different parts is just as important as those parts themselves. So when we think about systems failures today, what we're thinking about is anytime, you know, the important thing is the kind of talk between different parts of the system, different people, yeah, different people, different components. If you think about a car, right, there's there's an engine, but there's lots of other things that that has to talk with. And so when we think about systems failures, we think about a system where the, the, the connection matters more than just the individual parts themselves, anything like that, from, like you said, from plane crashes to the Oscars to, to everything in between. So when we think about system failure, the source of this kind of failure is often w- complexity, right? So it's when these systems are look more like a web than a line. They're hard to understand. They're hard to draw. You can't sort of sit down in a room with people and list all the ways that something is going to fail ahead of time. You've got to learn from the way the system evolves in real time, the way the system behaves to understand how it's going to fail. And so when we think about systems failures, we think about it kind of in that in that context. So tell me about some of these systems. Give me some examples of what you're talking about. Yeah, totally. So when we, you know, when we think about a systems failure, the kind of canonical example of a complex system, the classic example of a complex system is something really big and unwieldy that we might not think about, like a nuclear power plant, right? So most of us don't deal with nuclear power plants on a day-to-day basis, but it turns out that the Three Mile Island meltdown, which happened in in the late 1970s, is this really nice example of this thing where people understood how all the components worked, but they didn't understand the ways that the kind of unexpected ways the system could interact. So the Three Mile Island accident, which was this huge meltdown, you know, it wasn't caused by a big earthquake. It wasn't caused by a terrorist attack. It was caused by some valves being in the wrong position. It was caused by a stuck gauge in the control room, sort of indicating the wrong thing and confusing the people that were operating the nuclear power plant. And this led to this this massive meltdown. And and so, you know, that's a pretty abstract example that, that most of us don't think about. But we could also think about something like social media, right? Something like Twitter, where, you know, it's... If you tweet something that turns out to be controversial, for example, and you didn't think about it, you didn't get it, you know, run it by an outsider or sort of get somebody else's view on it. Well, Twitter is this big system that has all these interactions, right? So as soon as you put something out there, it's beyond your control. As soon as you put something out there, it's the kind of the interaction that matters and something can go viral, which, you know, marketers love if it goes viral in a great way, but something can go viral in a really negative way too. And so... I mean, I think social media is a good example of a complex system that actually a lot of us touch on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it's interesting because you see even really sophisticated brands kind of fall into this trap in social media where they might they might have a an idea of how they want to control their message or how they want to put something out there. But once it sort of hits the Twitter sphere, it, it's out of their control. And you can see these kind of meltdowns caused by the interaction, not by the initial thing that they wanted to do. How did you come up with the idea to write this book? Yeah, so my my co-author, Andras, and I, uh, Andras Tilchik, he's a professor at the University of Toronto, their business school. And, you know, we were just really, we were sort of chatting one day. We, we had been working on some interesting problems together, and we were kind of just comparing notes on the world. And, you know, there are all these failures in the headlines, and we were just sort of 
kind of asking ourselves like, well, what, what is it that, that ties these things in common? And I think in many ways, the genesis of the book was, I worked in, on Wall Street, I worked in finance through the financial crisis. And so it was seeing all these firms struggle to manage the kind of risks that they had created and that they were embedded in and, th and that they ultimately many of them didn't understand. And then it was seeing and reading about, because I'm a pilot, so I'm really interested in airplane crashes. Which is so amazing because I'm also really interested in airplane crashes. <laughs> well, you are not a pilot. <laughs> no, but so there is an element I think where we were talking about this earlier, where we all kind of come together around them because they're such a tragedy, but there's also an element where the world really does a great job of learning from them, right? So even as we see that the National Transportation Safety Board in the U.S. does a great job of investigating accidents, but, you know, even just as a pilot who, who does this kind of, you know, I teach people to fly, but I also do it for fun because I love it, we're always reading about accidents. We're always trying to learn from other things. And I started to, to see these parallels between aviation accidents and what was happening in the financial crisis. And then it was really in 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened, when that rig blew up in the Gulf. And I think so many of us watched in horror as oil just you know spilled into the Gulf of Mexico. It was this huge environmental disaster. And I realized that that was kind of the same thing. And so that was the, the, that was the same thing, the same kind of accident that was caused, you know, not by somebody showing up to do a bad job, but by somebody who showed up to do a good job, but the, the system exceeded their grasp. The complexity of the system exceeded their understanding of it. And we had this really devastating consequence as a result. You know, I think that it was those things that, that made, that kind of inspired Andras and I to start to look at the world through this lens and the more we looked at the world through this lens, the more we saw that so many things that were, were surprising and unexpected could be explained by this kind of, this way of thinking about the world, this way of thinking in terms of um, complexity on the one hand, so this, this idea of interconnection, and then this term that engineers call tight coupling, which is just this, it basically means that once a problem starts, there's not a lot of time to troubleshoot it. There's not a lot of time to understand what happens. And time is sort of a funny thing here because Time can be a matter of seconds or minutes, as the case with a nuclear power plant, or it can be months and months as we think about um, like a business proposition, a business expanding or something like that. So it's really these two variables, systems that are, are complex, that have all these interconnections and systems that are tightly coupled where they're really, they're very sensitive to these kind of failures. It's these systems that are kind of in what we think of as the danger zone. And it turns out that there's more and more of these as society and as our world gets more more complicated. So are these systems, are they high-tech? You're talking about aviation or you're talking about, you know, you give an example in the book and about Enron and then you also give an example about Knight Capital right. and about how it's computer glitches or, you know, little things that happen that you can't control as a human that are these systems. So is that, I mean, I'm a little bit Darwinian and I will be the first one to admit that where I like have a bike and refuse to upgrade to like DI2 digital and components because I like the old school gear shifting. Right. So, you know, is that, but is that kind of like what you're saying with the systems? Yeah. So some of it is definitely that, right? So if you think about like our cars, right? I mean, I think if you think about cars at all, right, it's like it's got an engine, you push down on the accelerator, like it goes, right? It goes because there's more gas getting the engine or more air or, or whatever. Like, But I think about the engine of a car as if it, I were stuck in the 1960s where I could like open the hood and I could see it and I could like, you know, poke around in it. It's kind of like that, that sort of stereotypical 
you. I don't know anything about cars, just to be clear. Right. Um, but really, when you think about a car, a car is just a bunch of computers, right? So a car is a bunch of computers that are, is really finely optimized to to make stuff happen, right? And so we have this system that I think in abstract seems very, very simple, but turns out to be incredibly complex. And it, it's, it's just getting more complex, right? Companies are now connecting cars to the internet, right? Which is, I mean, it gives a little bit of capabilities. Like I have a, a, a 2016 Subaru, right? This is not, like you would not think of this as a high-tech car, but I can look up stock prices on my infotainment system. Like why anyone would ever want to do that, I don't know. But this capability, it also makes the car now connected in a way that it was never before. And it means that, you know, manufacturers have to think about security and internet stuff. And it's it's like, it's this crazy thing where we're making these trade-offs that we don't even really have a voice in many times. Well, and I think we just went on a trip and decided that we were going to rent a car. Uh-huh. And, you know, we're from New York. So if we have cars, they're like small cars. We decided to rent a big truck. And it was quite entertaining and you know from the outside it looks like a big mechanical thing we get inside the car and to turn to, to go from park car. to start the car you press a button and to change the gear you turn a dial and I was thinking you know what I know that when I'm like moving in in my automatic car when I move that little uh, stick from point A to point B. I'm feeling resistance, but I know that's not really mechanical, but at least it makes me feel like I'm doing some work. Right. Whereas I'm like, I could just really miss that dial by a quarter turn and I'm in reverse, totally. not in drive. And I, I was kind of thinking about this. And I think Malcolm Gladwell actually talks about this on one of his podcasts, you know, about the fact that our perception of safety and what actually is happening are very different. Right. I my perception when I turned that dial was like, wow, I, I really could make a I could make a huge error here. Totally. And and we have a story in the book that's about exactly that. It's about the Star Trek actor Anton Anton Yelchin who he got crushed by his car because it had this right it you I mean we all know what we all know how the kind of classical gear shifter is designed right it's got these positions you can kind of see where it is you can feel where it is he was in a jeep cherokee and it had this you know fancy gear shifter and so the, the position it was in did not correspond to the gear it was in there was no correspondence between it and i think designers i mean you know that that design was reviewed by presumably hundreds of people, right? And yeah. the fact that designers kind of broke that relationship and didn't think about the risk of it, because what they were really doing was adding complexity, right? They were making it harder to see what state the car was in. And I mean, it killed him. There was a big recall, right? I mean, it's a it's a tragic story. And I think that we all, I mean, not all of us were in New York, but like a lot of us have cars. And I think that we're in an era now where we have to we as consumers, but also the companies that we buy from, they have to start being a little bit more skeptical that we need to have transparency in these systems. So we can't, we can't make those kind of mistakes. Well, you talk about a lot and I come from a design background. Marnie comes from a design background. You know, part of design is about somehow solving a complex problem in a simple way. Right. And you talk a little bit about how, 
what we perceive as great design is sometimes introducing unnecessary complexity into a system. Totally. The other example of that that is even lower tech than the car is what happened at the Oscars in 2017, right? So Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway are on stage. They they have the envelope. La La Land, right? Like, oops, it's not La La Land, right? And so here is this, you know, extremely like sophisticated production, right? High production values. There were a bunch of mistakes that happened there. I mean, one that's really interesting is the fact that they had two sets of envelopes backstage. And they they meant this as a safety system, right? Two sets of envelopes. So, you know, if somebody, if one of the accountants that runs the kind of backstage, you know, the, the sort of voting part of the Oscars, if one of them gets stuck in traffic or whatever, you've got this backup. But what it meant was that, you didn't you you know you sort of didn't have the system that guaranteed that the right envelope was going to the right person because there was this extra envelope floating around and then also you look at the design of the envelopes and boy are they beautiful like see a very subtle gold lettering best picture right it's like very small like very nice for television and so when 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 Warren Beatty's you know take takes the envelope obviously he doesn't notice that it's the wrong thing by the time he gets to the card it's too late right he doesn't know what to do when he sees that it's the wrong thing. And you can see on his face this moment of just consternation, like, uh-oh, something is not right here. And I really feel for him because, you know, what do you do in that in that situation, right? Act. <laughs> well, and, and if you, I mean, I've watched the clip obsessively, right? Because we, we wrote about this, but you watch and he shows it to Faye Dunaway as if to say like, hey, look at this, this is wrong. But she kind of thinks he's just hamming it up, right? She thinks he's like playing the moment. And so she obviously just looks at it and sees La La Land, right? And so just goes for it. And and then it's like, oh boy. But you look at the how they changed the design for, for 2018. Boy, are those envelopes ugly. It's like big letters, bold, best picture. And then it has it again on the sides, best picture. Like it is impossible to make that same mistake again. It's impossible to mix that up. So that's exactly what you are trying to achieve with the examples in your book is to help businesses understand when there is a failure, how they can improve their system and fine tune it for the next time. Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, one of the things kind of thinking about this idea of complexity, it's that you can't just predict all of the ways that the system can fail, right? Because it comes out of these interactions and there's just a ton of ways that they can interact. So the real key is to learn from what your system is telling you. And that sounds like super like new agey, but but really what, what it means is it's to pay attention to treat these small problems, these small errors, as if they are important signals of stuff that's going wrong. So like in my in my own life, I've definitely had toilets in my house that are running slow, right? And I'm like, oh, this toilet's probably on its way to clogging. But you know, what do I do? I try to ignore it. Right. You just right. ignore it as much as possible until at some point, literally, you know, the whole system backs up and, it, and it's, a, it's a real problem. And I think that, you know, that's the kind of thing that we do in our, you know, in our personal lives. You know, we don't take our cars in for oil changes, like all of this stuff. And the consequences there, they may be messy, but they're usually not huge for us. But when you talk about the scale of a business or even, you know, some more kind of sophisticated things that there are some more important things that happen in our home lives like how we think about the process of you know buying our first house or or where we want to live or what kind of job we want to take those things are also it turns out really complex and sort of suffer from these same kind of challenges is it a thought process then in that particular case i think it's part of it's a thought process 
part of it is kind of understanding the problem, right? Understanding that, you know, thinking about buying a house, right? You walk in, like a house has got a really nice entryway or an apartment building has got, you know, a nice foyer and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so nice, right? But like, does that apartment actually serve what you, or does that condo actually serve your needs, what you needed to do? And so, you know, one of the things we write about in the book is research around this idea that when you're making a big decision, you should come up with criteria ahead of time. Like, what's important? You know, is it important that this place has two bedrooms or is it important that it has laundry in the unit? Is it important that it has a two-car garage? Or like whatever, like whatever the things that are important, come up with those ahead of time. And you can come up with those kind of just by writing it down and thinking about what's important to you. You can also sort of use a fancy way to kind of, you know, like use post-it notes to vote, right? You can do lots of kind of things to sort of figure out if you're a group, like what, what's important to you if you're a couple. And then having done that ahead of time, now all of a sudden you're in this position where you can walk into a place and you can be like, uh, you know, it only has it has you know, only has one bedroom or whatever. This does not meet this particular criteria, so I'm going to give this give this a zero for this line, right? Or it does have laundry in the unit, so it's going to get a one for laundry in the unit. You know, it's move-in ready, so it's going to get a one for that. And so you can actually make these kind of rational comparisons between places that we're usually really, really bad at. Yeah, because you just take it for granted that you're just going to walk in or figure out, you know, you're you're going to go see this house or you know, you're interested in a new job and you go in for the interview. And then when you're in that moment, you're so overwhelmed and in that moment totally. that it's hard to think. So it's good to have that list and criteria before you get to that place. Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Well, and I think that's like the real estate thing in New York is so relevant. And, you know, one of the things I think we do is prepare ourselves for the opportunity. It's really hard yeah. to be strategic in a way that you can be in other places where you could actually lay out. I mean, I've uh, almost abandoned the term master plan, which is my life's work, but it doesn't work in New York. You really need a, a framework. You need a strategic framework so that you kind of know what direction you're going in, but you can respond agilely to the opportunity that comes and know that it's like pointing you in the right direction. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. That's I think that's exactly it. And I think it's interesting because the more structure you, so decisions like what, what condo to buy or what house to buy, you know, we make those decisions like four, three, four times in our lives, right? We don't get good at them. We don't get good at them in the same way that we get good at cooking something. We don't get good at them in the same way that, you know, we um, get good at driving, right? Where these these other activities where we have constant feedback, we never get feedback on. I mean, ra rarely do we get feedback on these kind of huge decisions. And so by adding a little bit of structure to them, we actually can set ourselves up to be able to be much more opportunistic and improvisational, like you're saying, much more flexible by knowing what's actually important and what actually we want to get out of them. And that's true for career changes. It's true for um, real estate. You know, it's true for, for lots of these kind of big one-off decisions. So that being said, what do you think about going with your gut and intuition. When should you go with your gut? And when is going with your gut putting you at, you know, in an emo too emotional a position or putting yourselves at unnecessary risk? Yeah, I think actually, <laughs> can, I, can I respond in a meta way, yeah. which is like yeah. super wonky, which is we often go with our gut about going with our gut, which is like a weird thing to say. So I think we can go with our gut when we are in 
an environment or a system where we have a lot of practice, where we have a lot of practice and we get a lot of feedback. So, you know, these are our systems where we make the same kinds of decisions over and over and over again. Those are the systems where we, we can reliably show that people develop really good intuition. Systems where people develop, don't develop good intuition are like systems where we make a decision and we never get any feedback. Sometimes this is a big decision like buying a house, but it could be small decisions too. It could be like we think one thing politically, I guess, or we think one thing in a certain way. And we as humans are just are pretty bad at trying to gather data that disproves our views. And so we might have a very strong view that we've never actually tested in the world. I kind of think of it like if you're cooking, but you've never tasted your food, you're going to be an awful cook, right? It doesn't matter right. what training you've had. If you just never get feedback on the fact that you just made something and added you know, way too much salt or, or didn't add enough salt, if you never taste it, you're never going to get feedback on it. So you know, nobody does that. I feel like that's a really good example, especially for our listeners who are probably relating to it either on that level of like, you know, buying a house or cooking. But I kind of relate to all of this on the level of training and race analysis and picking races that I'm going to do in triathlon. And I know that Lori also is thinking the same exact thing as me. I want to talk about it from the perspective of the selection of the races that we do. And Lori is going to talk about it from the uh, another perspective of training, right? Yeah, yeah. So I would, you know, there's a feeling that I have that I can go with my gut because I've done a certain race over and over again. But, you know, when selecting a race, there's certain criteria and a checklist and a framework that I put together. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So you're talking about when, when you're choosing? Yeah, race. like when we're si- we sit here every year, we decide, you know, what at races. The, at this very table. At this very at this table. Very table. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, and we just sort of sit and think, you know, what races do we want to do? Where do we want to travel? Where do we want to, you know, what 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 kind of uh, terrain do we want? Like what kind of ocean, is it an ocean swim, a lake swim? Do we want well, hills? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add yeah. in the um, level of complexity, right? Which is that you could go to the same race and all of the things could be exactly the same. The course could be exactly the same, but the conditions, right? The weather, right? can be dramatically different. And just that alone can completely change your experience. And, you know, we've even found, because we're kind of data nerds as well, we look at our times and races we've done three and four years in a row, and they're dramatically different, right? One year there's like a headwind and like you're barely moving on the bike and the next year there's a tailwind and you're like flying and it has nothing to do with whether you were better trained or whether you were in good health. So So I feel like this is when systems fail. (laughs) Well, I I actually, (laughs) I I think it's it's a beautiful example of this thing that many times in our lives we don't measure stuff, right? Which is like reasonable, we're all busy people, but like, I think what that back to that intuition question, I think one of the things that leads to is we don't measure things. We see an outcome and then we decide that our process for that was good. So, right. You had a good time on the bike. That means your process for training was good. Right. When, as you said, it can be because of the wind, it can be because of lots of stuff. And so the, the kind of, I think the real, the challenge here is that we often take a lot of confidence from these things that are essentially random. Right. And, that's not the worst thing in the world, but if we really want to get better, we have to be a little bit more, um, we don't have to be crazy data driven, like, but we have to be a little bit more reflective about like the fact that um, maybe our intuition about 
how well we did being due to our training wasn't like isn't right. So I, you, I think we're, we're really good at looking at correlation, but we are really bad at understanding causality. Right. So I, I'm, I'm going to jump to our favorite product, which is the Garmin watch. Oh, yeah. And Marnie and I do now have both Garmin, have. Chris? Do you have I a Garmin? I don't have a Garmin what do you watch. Have? What watch do you have? I have a G-Shock, which I've been told now is like now is in vogue. Oh, oh really? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, this right. is what people tell me. People are like, oh, you should Instagram your G-Shock. And I'm like, I, I guess I should be on Instagram. Then, you just but, started Instagram. Right, We're I did. Talk I just about started that. Instagram. <laughs> yeah. So like so we are. I mean, and I maybe I'll just say myself, I'm obsessed with the data that comes out of my watch. I wear it 24-7. It has my morning alarm on it. It wakes me up by a vibration. It tells me how long I've slept every night. It tells me what my heart rate is. And the most interesting piece of data coming out of it now is something they call your stress score, which in and of itself might make you stressed. So (laughs) this, this, as I understand it, is the time in between your heartbeats right, and like right, how right, regular right. your heart is beating so it's not like are you like is it beating really fast or is it being really slow but like the variance, how well right? how's the variance yeah heart rate variability and then stress score is the inverse of that if you've got a high stress score not so good and the watch will literally tell you you've been you haven't had enough restful moments today like slow yourself down right okay so last time when marnie invited me to the podcast which i believe was like the first podcast. Yeah. It was an we amazing were, episode, by the way. Oh, I loved it. thank you. So we were, we were getting, we were getting ready to go down to Miami to do was the it marathon. Miami it was, it was, yeah, it was the Miami marathon. Right. Oh. Because I, my, I remember thinking, I wonder, I want to do this because I wonder what it feels like to run more than 15 miles. Like at right, that point, right. I never run more than 15 miles. And I'm like, you know, kind of like I felt the same way about childbirth. Like, I wonder what that feels like. How bad could it be? <laughs> bad enough to take drugs. So I, <laughs> the, the run or the childbirth? The child, the childbirth. <laughs> so it's now happened, right? So we, we did Marnie did a half marathon. I did the marathon. And you know, it had its typical moments, right? Terrible and wonderful and all right. that. But you cross the finish line and you forget And it was like a great accomplishment. And I feel great after the marathon, like really great. Right. And I was, I was reasonably trained. I mean, I could have been better trained, reasonably trained, but like I, you know, I did 26 fine. The next day, a little bit sore. Right. But then like normal, totally normal. And then total body meltdown Mm. for a year. And I started getting these like little annoying illnesses like just irritation on my skin or like I'm getting a little cold or I get a sore throat or I have a little bit of a headache not really sick sick like you Mm -hmm. need to not go to work but just generally under the weather and then I look at this stress score and it spikes for like six months wow it spikes and I ended up Googling and finding this guy who's at some research place in North Carolina and I write to him. He actually writes me back and then he calls me. Amazing. He's He's a doctor. He's a doctor. He's a doctor and a PhD. And he's like, yeah, this happens to people. And sometimes it can take up to three years for them to recover. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not on that program. But it was fascinating to me to see how I was feeling and then also to look at the data and to say, okay, there's something that's going on here. And right. I went to a bazillion medical appointments, right? And no one would, they take the blood and I look fine. And they're like, there's nothing clinically wrong with you. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not, it's not right. I know what, I know it's not right. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm thinking about as you, as you talk about this is just that 
you've got to look at the right data, right? I mean, in your in your race example, if you're not looking at the winds, the headwinds or the tailwinds, you don't have the whole picture, right? And I'm going to go big scale now. In the book, we write about Deepwater Horizon. The, you know, so th- this oil spill, you know, huge accident. People die on the rig. I mean, it's a real tragedy. So that year, Transocean, who was the company that actually owned the rig, so they operated it for BP, but Transocean own, owned it, they published in their annual report something like, something. it's a phrase, I'm not going to get it right, but it, it's in the book, and it's something like, despite the tragic loss of life in the Gulf of Mexico, from the perspective of our safety statistics, we had the best, you know, the safest year ever. And it's like, your safety statistics aren't right. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, if you sort of, if you have narrowed your problem so much that you have missed the forest for the trees, then you've got to start looking at different things. You've got to start looking at different data. And so do you have any thoughts on the medical field and kind of traditional science versus none? You know, in Western medicine, the gold standard is the randomized controlled trial, right? Which is it's a really amazing standard, right? You, you sort people randomly, you give some people some, some of one drug, you give other people, you know, a placebo. So it's a good way of sort of saying like, is this drug efficacious, right? Does it work? But in some sense, the most interesting part of the randomized controlled trial is the fact that there's a placebo effect, right? That we don't think about that much, right? Like the fact that there is a placebo effect means that there is this unbelievable power in our body to self-heal that we do not understand. And the fact that we, that the, the randomized controlled trial, you know, anytime we're testing a medicine, anytime a, a pharmaceutical company is sort of rolling out a new drug to market, they are subtracting that placebo effect. That's fascinating, right? I had a friend who was just like, yeah, just give me the placebo. I just want to take the placebo and get better without the side effects, right? And I mean, there's some sense in which that's like totally the right way to think about the world. Yeah. And I mean, I think some of the reading that we've been doing on mind over body, how much can you really push yourself beyond what your body is capable of? Like at what point can your mind really override and change your chemistry? Totally. Yeah. I, I read the book 80-20 Running. I don't mm-hmm. know. Have yeah. you guys yeah, read that? Yeah. We read that. I love it. Um, it's such a good book. And I remember, you know, it turns out that the the fatigue that people get from running is not musculature it's mental right yep uh and like that's insane right and i think the other thing here kind of back to this idea of of training and complexity is you can write a training plan right but i don't know about you guys but i've never followed any training plan i've written exactly right you know life intervenes i get sick i get i have a, a client i go on a trip I have to report a, record a podcast. I don't get to run four miles before all of my podcasts. Right, so <laughs> we just ran four miles. So, you know, I think that there is this there is this way where a plan is great, kind of like what you were saying before. A plan is great, but let's realize that the plan is a starting point for a departure. And then I think for me, the thing that I go back to over and over again is you've got to be iterating, right? You've got to be both measuring your inputs and measuring your outputs and changing them as as they go. I, like many people, have worked with what weight I want to be at in my life. And I've been losing weight recently. And I've been losing weight in a different way that I've lost weight before. Before, I've lost weight by running a ton, you know, by training for by training for a half or by doing a bunch of trail running and just, like, having my output be really, really high. Now what I've done is sort of shifted my diet. So I'm, like, basically eating very, very few carbs. And it's really interesting because it's – it's no longer an act of willpower 
to hit the calorie targets that I want to hit. It's no longer an act of willpower to do that because my body doesn't feel hungry. And that's not something that if you had asked me, you know, 18 months ago that I could have told you, right? It's something that works for me and my body, but I only got there by experimenting, by measuring both, you know, what I was eating, by noticing that, by reading about it and, and sort of reflecting on it. And then also by obviously looking at my weight, right? Because if, if you're trying to do something, you should look at the variable that you're trying to, you're trying to move in your life. So it's good to have systems for your personal endeavors. Totally. Yeah. What, and, and so these systems are great if you're one person and you're managing the system and the system is set up by you, the framework is set up by you, but how does that scale to a larger business or, or for a company? I mean, I, I think we're like bouncing, I feel like I'm bouncing us back and yeah, forth with that question, great. but I think, so this idea of systems, it's, it's great because like we do the race debrief and we have training plans right. and we look at our watches and we look at all the numbers and like you were talking about right. where you're, you're trying to lose weight. So you're looking at your calories or you're looking at what you're eating and right. you know, what went wrong, what went right. But how do you do that as like a, as a massive organization, like fortune 500 organization? Yeah. Well, I, I think actually the answer was embedded in your question where mm -hmm. you ask what went well, what didn't go well, and what are we going to try next time? Right. I mean, I think those, those are three really powerful questions and you can use them in your personal life and we can talk about how to think about them in a family dynamic, which is, you know, a, a two to two to seven person team or whatever, but you can also use them in, in business with really big teams. Now it's not easy. It's a simple, they're simple questions, right? right? But they're not easy because the secret is that if you ask what went well, people are going to share what went well. If you ask what didn't go well, people have to feel comfortable sharing what didn't go well. There's this whole branch of research around something called psychological safety, which is, it's not how nice people are to each other. It's like how willing they are to take risks, how willing they are to fail, how willing they are to try something that doesn't work. And we wrote this book, Meltdown, right? You might think we're against failure. Like we're actually pro-failure, right? right. We're pro-failure, pro-risk-taking. The thing is you've got to do it at the right scale. And so to get a good answer for what didn't go well, you have to realize that if you're a manager, your people might not be comfortable saying that to you, no matter how nice you think you are, right? So I think there's this real thing embedded in organizations that makes it hard for them to learn because I think so many of them struggle to create an environment that really supports this kind of risk-taking and that when people fail, that really supports their ability to fail and says, hey, I know you failed on that, but you know, great job, great job trying. Maybe there's some kind of anonymous system mm -hmm. that can be implemented, like SurveyMonkey. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually, it's a really interesting point. And actually, it's what, what counterintuitively, what the research shows is that you, if you have to do this anonymously, that actually is itself a signal that this is not a safe space to share. Right. Um, so we work with a tech company. We're doing work with a tech company right now who is um, really focused on changing the way that they learn from failure, sort of transforming the way that their teams learn from failure. And, you know, they have a, I would say they have a strong culture of, of risk-taking. And one of the things they do is every year they give out an award to the person that they're, they're an e-commerce marketplace, to the person that broke their site in the most interesting way possible, mm. right? And so this is a way that they kind of create this, and it's a physical thing that they give this person. This is a way that they kind of create this artifact in the world that says you took a risk but you fucked it up but awesome job taking the risk right yeah. and i think yeah. that's super powerful and people don't it's great to celebrate your successes but man i would much rather have firms celebrate their failures 
so that they get more of that behavior. If you want to be innovative, celebrate your failures. Well, that's also like a very entrepreneur type mentality, which is embrace failure and like move on to the next thing, learn from it, grow, start something new. I mean, I guess it could be very scary for people working in a corporation that are not at the head or at the helm of the organization and that are being judged by their failures, at least in their minds, not empowered for the risks they take. So I think that's a great, it's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, and, and some of it is, it's all about the culture, right? It's all about the culture of the organization that you create, which is like your habits every day and how you treat people. Um, But one of the things we do is we focus on seeking the truth together. Yes. And the truth is the truth. It's not, it's not, you know, people might have different perspectives on the truth, right? And, and so we all try and bring those together, but we reward people for being honest. And even if honesty means that, you know, you really screwed this up or this didn't really go as you had expected. And, you know, it's, we use the, the term respect. Like I am, I respect you enough to be tough on you to hold you accountable but I also expect that you are going to respect me enough to tell me the truth because if we can and it's hard to get at the truth right so hard to get at well and even I'm going to go I'm going to go meta here like I just want to push back on the idea that they're even I mean this is going to sound super wonky but like I think in some of these cases you know I don't know what the truth is right like when people are involved in some big process whether it's you know a a big building or a big project or whatever, they are doing the best that they can at that moment, right? I think that that should be our our baseline assumption that people show up to work every day to do a good job, right? And so they're the kind of questions that you can get to to sort of suss out what what was going on in somebody's mind, the decision that they made, what led to that decision, right? It's interesting because the obvious question seems like, why did you do that? You know, that's sort of like, why did you do that? The five whys, but humans are really bad at talking about the why, right? We sort of make, there's actually a lot of really interesting research, um, some of which was done by a a friend of mine who's in in Sweden around basically people just make up explanations. Um, And so one of the things you can do is ask, how did you notice that there was a problem? What were you thinking when that happened? You know, stuff to kind of try to, to get what's going on in their head out in the world. And if you are part of an organization that can do that, you are you've got a huge leg up, right? And and actually, this is one of the reasons why we wrote the book, because both Andras and I really strongly believe, I really strongly believe that what is going to differentiate successful from unsuccessful companies, organizations, universities, whatever, in the future is not technology. It's not the kind of fanciness. It's not even sort of their product. It's how fast they're able to learn from failure and how fast they're able to learn that the world is complex and that mistakes are embedded in this world. And if they can learn from that, I think they're going to do great. They're going to be innovative. They're going to be resilient. They're going to be responsive. They're going to have this kind of capacity to adapt in real time to whatever they need to. If they can't learn from that, they're going to be Kodak, right? They're, right. they're, they're, they're going to be gone. Right. Yeah. And is that, do you feel like that's a big part of the company culture as well? Like having adapting that philosophy? Totally. Yeah, and, and I think it's a hard, you know, it's it's not an impossible shift to make, but it's a hard shift to make. And I think 
you know, you see you see companies that have it in some areas, but but don't have it in others. And and to me, that's really interesting. So, you know, Delta, for example, right? So Delta is an airline. From the safety standpoint, they're really good at this, right? They're really good at learning from these near misses, learning from these kind of weak signals that something's not working, because that's their bread and butter every day. But a couple of years ago, they had a fire in one of their computer data centers, right? And it brought down their whole reservation system. And because our world is so connected, right, we're in this zone of complexity and tight coupling, we're in this danger zone, that meant that it grounded their whole fleet of planes. Like, they don't have a paper backup for tickets, right? I mean, we all have our tickets on our phone, right? There's not printers at the airport that are, you know, printing out the the 1980s style tickets that I grew up flying with. And so they have a problem in their data center, their whole system goes down. That, to me, is an example of complexity. You know, it's hard to know where this error is going to come from ahead of time. But it's also an example of it's also an example of not learning from the weak signals that preceded that big problem. I have to talk about your concept of tight coupling because yeah. I honestly, in reading the book, which I'm pretty sure I read in a day because it was so fascinating, that was the big eye opener for me. And I, as I've said to you before, I love complex systems. If I were not in a complex system, I would be bored out of my mind. The idea of kind of solving that puzzle and the puzzle changing every day is for me what makes it exciting. But I have faced most recently one of the most complex systems that I've ever been a part of. And none of my systems for working apply. Uh Right. It's like just new, new world. And so When I read about tight coupling, it was like the light bulb went off because everything that I've always tried to do, and let's just talk about, you know, a construction project is about getting from the beginning to the end as seamlessly as possible with as few failures as possible and to get it done on time, on budget and at the highest level of quality. Right. And you're like, you're always giving up one of those things along the way. But, you know, the construction industry is kind of still old school, despite our advances in technology, like real people actually build things with their hands. Totally. And we've been doing it long enough that we've got enough experience and you can kind of go with your gut. Right. That being said, I can't get things to sequence. And I realized that I should just stop trying that. Uh. If I, rather than trying to get this to follow this, to follow this in this order, and then one thing doesn't happen on time and it has this domino effect all the way, I've really been trying to practice your idea of uncoupling things. And it's, it's working. Awesome. Um, It's working and it's really changed the way I go about thinking about problems. And I'm less focused on like trying to get everything to fit so closely together and more focused on just pushing each individual activity on its own path, right? And trying to create some separation between the two so there's less dependencies. Yeah, totally. thank you. Yeah, you're you're (laughs) welcome. It's a really interesting concept. And I think, right, we have an intuitive understanding of what complexity means, even if we can't, you know, do the math around it, right? It's like, there's a lot going on. We don't understand it all the time. It's hard to st- it's hard to sort of see. Um, the system's not transparent. But but tight coupling is one of those things that um, it's a little bit more it's a little bit more abstract. As you kind of you kind of kind of gnaw on it a little bit more. But for me, the example really became real when I started thinking about Thanksgiving dinner, right? And going from I mean I honestly used to have like color coded highlighted spreadsheets at Thanksgiving, right? Like 
turkey goes in at this time, potatoes go in, you know, stuffing, da 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 And it was like, it was complex because stuff has to go in at the same time, right? Or stuff has to go in in this precise sequence. And it's tightly coupled because like the turkey's got to finish before you can put the casserole in, right? So you have all of these relationships that are seemingly kind of intertwined. And then as we were researching the book, and actually at this point, Thanksgiving dinner was coming up, I, I was thinking about this and I was talking with Andras about it. And we actually just started doing a little bit of research. And it turns out that part of what makes Thanksgiving challenging is these interconnections. But you actually, you know, you can make the gravy the day ahead of time, right? And this is what chefs talk about. You make the gravy the day ahead of time, so all you have to do the day of is reheat it, which means you don't have to wait for the whole bird to be finished before you make the gravy. So the bird is still warm when the gravy comes out. You know, the turkey is weirdly tightly coupled, right? In the sense that it's literally connected, right? So, but the breast meat cooks at a different rate than the thighs. So you can easily end up with this, you know, the thighs are underdone, the breast meat is raw, da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, you can just cut them apart. And then you can use your meat thermometer, which, by the way, is a way to measure the state of the system, right? Back to data like we were talking before. You know, use your fancy meat thermometer, put it in the leg, see when it's done, put it in the breast, see when it's done, and then just take the individual pieces out when they're done. And all of a sudden, you no longer have this system that is has to be so precisely sequenced. And honestly, you can just enjoy Thanksgiving then. Yeah. Like, it's like much less of a production. It's yeah, great. That's right. And it's, and, and you can also just cater the whole thing. Well, that's the, that is, I feel like that is the New York option. <laughs> I'm just kidding because Lori cooks and she's awesome. So, yeah. Nope. I, but I am like, you're totally right. Whether it's Thanksgiving dinner or like just any night, um, I'm like obsessed with everything arriving on the table at the same time. I might need to start uncoupling. Yeah. No, I've been uncoupling service. forever. Like in terms of cooking, like I cook all night. Like I will like start cooking at six o'clock and mm -hmm. then I do some work on my computer and then I go back in the kitchen and I make a salad and we eat dinner at like 11. It's perfect. But, but like I've kind no of learned. Stress. I've learned how to work with a system to too, which is I pre-eat. Yep. And then I don't worry about when the dinner comes out because I'm not depending on it for my sustenance. Right. I just, it's like entertainment. Um, so pre-eating is a way of introducing slack into your system, yes. right? So you're not hangry, yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hangriness is tight coupling. Hangry, yes, yes. is absolutely tight coupling. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And you're right. It's like it's a total complex system. And, you know, I think cooking in general is a complex system. But that's just for me. Well, I think it is. But I think it has the advantages of you can measure stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I like temperature. Right. You can. So I don't know if you guys have read um, the food lab. No. J. Kenji Lopez. No. All better cooking through science. It's ah, awesome. I okay. love it. And. I mean, I'm a systems guy. So do you yeah. like cooking? I love cooking. Okay, because I'm getting that vibe. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. We yeah. like to cook. And we okay. also might all be hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Not hangry, but hungry. <laughs> no, well, well, Chris and I had a bar Good. from Bulletproof. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> I see, which are like pretty amazing mm -hmm. and gluten-free. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But seriously, I think that cooking is definitely a good example because I feel like there's a lot of tight coupling around cooking. But it doesn't have to be, like you said. Right. And I think, you know, so so I mentioned the the Food Lab. It's a great book. I mean, you should read Meltdown first. I mean, the Food Lab's a cookbook, so you don't, like, sit down. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's a great book. But one of the things he talks about is, like, get a meat thermometer, right? Like, what's going on inside the meat, that's the important thing. And if you get a thermometer, you get direct access to that data. And, you know, it turns out in a complex system, the antidote to complexity isn't simplicity, it's transparency, understanding, mm -hmm. it's seeing what's going on. There's some level at which some systems you can't simplify, but if you can 
understand what's going on, then you have less complexity. Like you Wait. can find a workaround. You can find a workaround or you can just sort of measure directly what's happening. So one of the things that was that was true about the Three Mile Island meltdown or like the BP Deepwater Horizon explosion or even the Oscars thing that we just talked about is that there were these mistakes that were made, but they were very hard to, for people to notice. They were very hard for people to observe. And like uh, a thermometer is a really good antidote to under or overcooked meat right because right. you just you know you know the temperature and so like boom you've totally you've totally eliminated the complexity of your system in that way well and you talk a little bit about how diversity which is i think something that everybody is thinking about now as they're creating teams and creating companies and right. creating cultures and diversity can be all kinds of diversity but like diversity of thoughts coming to the table and people challenging each other right. because you don't want everybody thinking the same totally. way that's like the biggest risk you can have right totally you hit the nail on the head there with the word challenge because I, I think for a long time there was this story of diversity as this you know this kind of creative thing and it's this this kumbaya moment and people bring these different perspectives and they share but actually diversity is can be hard and can be really challenging and if if you say something and someone doesn't get it then that can be frustrating. But what diversity does, whether, as you said, whether it's professional diversity or diversity in backgrounds, um, in ethnic backgrounds, what it does is it gives people, it sort of eliminates this benefit of the doubt effect that researchers find in homogeneous groups. It gives people the, the kind of ability to, to sort of disagree and to say, hey, I don't understand that. This doesn't make sense to me. They sort of trust each other less and therefore they're more critical and they're more questioning. And it turns out that, in, in simple systems, just from a kind of decision-making standpoint, that's not as important. But in a complex system, it's hugely important to surface those things. So what are some things that you can do to encourage those kind of hard conversations to happen early before you get to the point of near failure or failure? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think one of them is to, to really try to make your stance be a learning stance, right? Try to make your stance be the world is, things are hard, mistakes are inevitable. Even people that show up with the best intentions are gonna are gonna have, make mistakes and have issues. So switch to this stance that's like, okay, now we're gonna learn from this. We're gonna put in place, mistakes are okay, we're gonna try to learn from it. That's easy to say, it's it's hard to do, right? But I, I think it's it's an important, it's a, it's, a, it's a big step to sort of getting organizations, creating organizations that are gonna be adaptive in, in this way. But the other thing is just to add some structure to your decision. So we talked about using criteria to, de, you know, deciding criteria ahead of time for these big decisions, right? You don't want to do it for every decision because most decisions just aren't that important. But for big ones, figure out the criteria for success. That might even be hiring somebody, right? Like what does this person need to be good at for me to hire them or for me to put them in charge of this project? Like, what are the skills I need them to have? What are the relationships I need them to have? And then you can evaluate people based off of those. And there's also a handful of tools that can be really, really powerful. We write about one that's called the premortem, which was invented by a psychologist called Gary Klein. And it's basically, it's using, it's kind of using our human ability for storytelling to understand our, our systems and to understand the way that they might go wrong. So, a lot of people run brainstorming exercise where they think about, okay, well, he, you know, here's how things might fail. You know, here's what here's what might go wrong with this project. A premortem is a little bit different than that. A premortem is you say, okay, let's imagine that it's six months from now or a year from now, 
and this project has failed. It's failed in a really big way. It's failed in a really kind of horrible and awkward way. In fact, we're so embarrassed about this failure that we, we don't even want to look at each other anymore. Now, with our team, let's all go around the room. We're going to take 90 seconds, two minutes, and we're all going to write down reasons this failure happened. And by putting it like that, by putting it as if the failure has happened, it actually frees our brains to really make some more specific but also kind of broader stories about why this failure has happened. And then we can go around the room and everybody can contribute some of the reasons, which also sort of, you know, breaks this classic hierarchy that happens in groups where it's like, nope, everything's going to be great, boss. And I think this is a really powerful technique that we can even use at home for like a, a vacation, right? To figure out, or a race to figure out what's going to, what the thing is. It's, it's not like we're not going to do the project or we're not going to do the race, but now we understand what we might need to think about ahead of time to make sure it doesn't happen. Like what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Or like what's the plausible scenarios that if we unleash the power of our brain to tell a story, what are the scenarios it comes up with and, and how can we think about those? How can we think about how to mitigate those? And speaking of vacation, you were talking about earlier about using some of these systems and theories and framework for family. You know, how do you use this in your family dynamic? Totally. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I had, and when I was writing the book, he was four turning five. Now he's six. Tell me a little bit about your family <laughs> before two, we start. I have two I have two kids, Torvald, who is six, and Soren, who is 18 months now, and two boys. You know, they are lovely children, but they are children, right? Um, they're challenging, right? That I think many of us are in every day. And, and, you know, by the way, I don't know your experiences, but my kids don't listen to me. Um, so, you know, there's this whole element of like, we're trying to raise these kids that are, you know, independent and free thinking and creative. By the way, that also means they won't listen. Like nobody tells you that right. when you, when you, <laughs> when you decide to go down that path. Right. Um, it's like, don't, you can't do the things like do as I say, not as I do. Totally. Because that or, just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. You yeah. can't even do the do as I say and I do because as yeah. far as I can tell. They don't listen. Don't, yeah. They, There's exactly. nothing. And the because I'm your mother. That doesn't that work. That doesn't work. Not anymore. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I, I think I used that. Torvald was asking for something the other day and I used, you know, but I think I basically used because I said so. And I had this moment where I was like, I can't believe I actually said that, first of all. <sighs> and then he was like, Papa, I hate it when you say that. And I was like, I can appreciate that. Like, yeah. I can appreciate that you hate it when I say that. I would find that really frustrating, too. So we write about in the book, there's this, this lovely computer scientist who wrote about kind of how to run an iterative process for your family. And it's actually the same questions we talked about before. It's like, what worked well? What didn't work well? What are we going to try next time? Right. And so I really I get the kids ready in the morning and I have been thinking in this way, not always, but like I've been thinking in this way for the last couple of years. All right. Well, how do we design a morning routine that works? Right. And I think the key thing about both kids and and actually the whole world is that what works one week does not work the next week. What works one month does not work the next month. So you know, this process of, of iterating worked for a while, right? Or so the process of iterating worked. We settled on a routine that worked for a while. Now Torvald won't get dressed in the morning. Okay, so what do we do now? Well, we're going to switch the order of getting dressed in breakfast. So we're going to try to see if that works. So you have to get dressed before breakfast. 
Okay, that doesn't work. He just doesn't eat breakfast. All right, so now I'm thinking, like, what do we do? Like, what are we trying? What are the ideas? And we're talking about these things, and, you know, we're having a discussion about them. This didn't work. What are we going to try? And we don't always do it in a perfect way, but, you know, we, we try. And now I'm like, okay, I just got to keep getting him up earlier and earlier until, like, you know, two hours of breakfast becomes – two hours of that breakfast becomes a some bearable thing. And that might work. It might not work, right? And if it works – it might only work for two or three weeks, but like, I'll tell you what doesn't work, the, sest- the system we have now. Yeah. So, you know, I think iterating and trying to figure it out is, I don't know what else to do, right? Other than getting him dressed, which. So we, we've had the same experience and. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, in my set of values, that is not my top priority. Being on uh, time. Being on time. Mm-hmm. I recognize that there are other people for whom that is like very important. And so. I've learned as a grown-up to adapt myself to be respectful of other people who are punctual. It's not my thing. So my daughter, every morning, would be really quite anxious about being to school on time because her teachers told her that was important for her to get into middle school, and I, as a parent, wasn't connected enough to know that. We did. She, that was never communicated. We missed, missed the, the memo. memo. There was no the communication. In hindsight, I now understand what was prompting her right. anxiety. But e- either way, I was like, you know what? You're you're 10 now. Uh, if you want to be on time, you have to participate in the system that's going to get you to school on time. Right. And so we kind of did that. We like did a brainstorming session. She We got her a phone, which I think honestly for everything everyone says about like kids and devices has been a really effective tool because number one she can put her by her bed and she can set an alarm yeah and i don't have to wake her up right so she now is the one who wakes up she wakes up first we set the auto we bought an automatic coffee pot we preset it so that the coffee is ready in the morning and the mugs are set out with creamer. Yes. She wakes up in the morning. The first thing she does is pour the coffee in the mugs and bring it to us in bed. Okay. There couldn't be a system <laughs> that works like better. And it's system. It's, it's amazing. Amazing. Right. Because she's incentivized by her own motivation of, I want to get to school. She recognizes that in order That's for me to goal. get what I want, right. I need to serve other people and get them on my team, right? Yeah. And I feel like what's what is a better lesson to learn about how things work in the world? And it works, right? Cuz we get the coffee and within, you know, 10 15 minutes we're awake and we're ready to go and then she has this whole like every 5 minutes she has a little alarm that goes off so she watches a little bit of James Charles and she goes and brushes her teeth and she does her morning face routine and we have without fail arrived at school on time or early since that started yeah it's been great she's developed her own system yeah that's amazing right yeah it's amazing and I think it shows the power of like how you balance that creativity and that openness with with adding some structure and learning right because that system didn't exist on day one right and you couldn't have and you you could not have she never would have been on board with that system if you hadn't gone through that process well and i was gonna say like yeah her new thing is that when Lori is taking her to school in the morning she now understands that if because she likes to stay up late Mm. That if Lori does not go to sleep, that that is the first repercussion of her not getting to school on time. So then she tries to tell Lori that she has to go to bed. Yeah. She starts telling Lori to go to bed. 
at yeah, like 9 30 honestly i think she needs less sleep than i do and me too so, so everybody knows, does yeah. right so like at 10 o'clock she'd still be ready to stay up and i'm like dude i need to get to bed because <laughs> i need my nine hours right yeah. well, we tried a lot of opposite psychology exercises also so <laughs> you know i'm sure she's gonna listen to it this or at some point and right. then we're gonna lose this yeah. whole thing but but I think yeah. it is like it gets I think it gets at what you've been talking about which is like the importance of failure the importance of allowing us to let systems fail right and not step in and try and recover them or save them artificially right, right? and I think that that's oftentimes as parents what we do is like we over parent and we, we step in, we take control, we don't allow them to take the responsibility. Totally. And then we wonder why they go off to college and they come home and live with you until they're in their 30s. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and I, I think that, you know, one of the things I've thought about is like, is in parenting, like how many mistakes I want my kids to be away from a serious injury, right? And the answer for me is two. We were with some friends. We were climbing, you know, at the base of a, of a wall out, outside. And there was like a, a probably like a 15-foot drop. And Torvald was like running by the drop. And I kind of pulled him aside and I said, you know, look, if you slip here, you might fall on this huge drop. So you don't want to be there. Like you want to be a place where if you slip, you're going to fall somewhere that's safe. Like you want to be two problems away from from this kind of serious injury. But like... I'm fine. Like if, you know, his, he went to an amazing preschool where the question they would ask the kids all the time is, does that seem safe to you? And like, that's an amazing, empowering question. question to give yeah. a three or four year old. And what, what I think is, I think you're absolutely right about how important it is to transfer that responsibility to them. And it was amazing to watch these kids self-organize these activities that seem crazy, but actually they did it in a safe way. You know, when they were three, jumping off a block onto the ground, but they would be very careful about making sure there's a pillow there and making sure that kind of self-policing to make sure that the previous student was out of the way before the next student jumped. And these things that I think as adults, we just, we often kind of lose our tolerance for, but we need to let our kids do that. I mean, we also, I think we have a habit of celebrating failures and referencing times that we've failed multiple times before achieving a goal. And, you know, I think if there's anything, we just want her to try, right? And not to give up on trying. And I think, you know, there's a talent show coming up, right? And we also want her to know that, like, just because you got in last year doesn't mean that you're going to get in this year. Like, the circumstances are different. So don't rest upon your laurels. Recognize that every time you go into a situation, you're entering into a new system right. that, you know, doesn't necessarily mean success. Right. We but. talk about, do you guys talk about growth mindset? We talk a lot about growth mindset What's in that? our house. Mm. It's this idea that people either believe that people are kind of have a fixed talent that they either have or they don't or they have the ability to learn so it's kind of this learning organization in just like within one person and so we try to talk a lot about failures there's a a, the the power of yet like Mm. i can't do this it's like no you can't do this yet right there's this idea that sort of not just practice but kind of practice and reflection and hard work are the way to get better at these things there's a really cool kids book called making a splash which again you should read meltdown first but the kids book making a splash is about it's a kids book about growth mindset it's about a girl and her brother who are taking swim lessons and her brother just stays on the kickboard the whole time because he doesn't want to look foolish in front of his friends he doesn't want to like 
try to swim and he doesn't know how and he really struggles with it and she really struggles she does the kickboard the first day but then she really struggles to swim and then she gets a little bit better a little bit better you know as one does and by the end of it she can swim and you know her brother still can't right because he he kind of didn't want to take that risk he didn't want to take that that chance to fail and i actually was I was just talking with my my therapist about this today, about this idea that for my business, anything that I feel comfortable with, I shouldn't be doing, right? Like I could make an okay website. It wouldn't be fabulous. It wouldn't win any awards. It would be good enough. But the energy and the power that I put into making a mediocre website, that actually should be spent on trying to do business development, trying to do things that I don't have any control over the outcome, right? Trying to do things that actually are a risk to figure out where I fail so I can figure out where I can succeed. Like my upside for making a website, not that good. My downside, also fine. It's not a risk. I should only be doing things that are a risk. It's interesting. I like that perspective. Yeah, it's a great perspective, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, I've been reading. So my vacation read was David Goggins' book, and he was a Navy SEAL. And you know, he's all about the fact that we have the ability to push ourselves beyond what we think is our perceived limit. Yep. And in one of the chapters is about exactly that. And of course, read your book first before <laughs> you read yes. it. But it, it's it's about you know what did you do today that scared you? What did you do today that you know? That got you out of your comfort zone. That got you out of your comfort zone. Um, So for me, this week, it was riding the chairlift up to the top of the Mm. mountain without the bar down. Mm. What? You did that? I did. I love skiing, but I'm like dramatically afraid of heights. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of flying. There's something weird. I love being in an airplane, and I'm fine in tall buildings. But if I'm in unprotected air, I have a fear that I'm going to fall or that I'm going to go crazy and jump. Sure. Yeah. I, I actually, that really resonates with me. Okay. I also have that like, and it's so weird where it comes from, but I do, I have this, what would happen if what my brain happen? decided to what jump? Would happen? And, and it turns out my ancestors decided not to do that. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. So probably I'm, you know, but like, probably okay. but yeah. like the fear is there. It's crazy. So the, the chairlift bar, like it does nothing. Okay. I mean, I'm, my weight is on, on my back and the bar, I've never touched the bar. I've never fallen against the bar. The bar has never protected me from anything. And so I'm riding up and I'm like, okay, the people around me don't want to put the bar up and I'm not going to force it. And I'm going to ride up and I'm fine. And the, then that feeling that you get when you get to the top and you're like, okay, I did that. Right. Mm. And you can call upon it again. And it's like you've built your strength. And it's like those little things. Like, can you make those little risky decisions every day that help you grow? Marnie and I were talking about this before, but I I live in Seattle and that's where Brooks, the the shoe company is from. And we both have Brooks. Brooks I'm wearing Ghost. He has a general. I saw. I saw. Yeah. yeah. Um, You I, I work right across the street from their headquarters, which is this awesome building. And, you know, they're a super cool company and all this. But they have like on the on the front, it's like 10 steps to running, uh, like 10 steps to become a runner or something. And it's like left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And that's all it is. Right. I mean, everybody starts somewhere. When I started running, I started with a couch to 5K program. Um, and, you know, everybody's got to take that that first step in that in that pursuit. And then, like you said, you can draw on it. It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. It's like little baby steps right like you don't have to run fast all you have to do is put the next foot in front of the other how hard is that yeah it's easy and I think that that whole philosophy 
the whole athlete mindset, the whole like you can, you just do it, get it done. Like that applies to every aspect of your life. It could be your business. It could be a job. It could be your family. It could be working out. It could be training for your next marathon. All those things, they all have systems. All of those things all flow together. They all do have systems that are people are setting up and following and breaking and failing and moving forward. And it's all, it's all together. One thing. That was so beautiful. Does that mean that it's time to eat? Was that a wrap? Yeah, was totally. that a yeah. wrap? That was amazing. I'm trying to wrap. No, this like, has been great. Thank you amazing. so much for coming and doing this. This has been great. And Lori, thanks for co-hosting. Thanks Marnie on the move. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I am so happy to be here. It was um, as fun as I hoped it would be. So that's amazing praise. Did I we had, cover everything? Wow. No, but that's why you have to read the book, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. You and do I, have yeah, to read the you book. have to read the book. Like, and, I think the book and is, yeah. you can do the audio book. Oh, yes, that's what I did. Which resulted in not only Marnie absorbing a tremendous amount of information, but a sparklingly clean and organized apartment. Mm. <laughs> nice. Nice. Multitasking. Yeah. Is I mean, I think, the, I think the book is good for everyone. You know, just to kind of wrap it up, I do think that, you know, even though it really is focused on a lot of corporate examples of systems that have failed, I do think that anyone can read this book and get a good takeaway and some key learnings on how they can apply it to their life, even if, you know, they're not a Fortune 500 CEO. Or, you know, it could be for your family, for your career. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. When we set out to write the book, we thought we would be writing about those big failures. And then the more we looked around, the more we saw all of these little things that applied to our and like so many people's everyday lives that it was yeah. really cool to kind of get to, to understand the research in that way and be able to present it in a way that's accessible. Awesome. This has been great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Marnie you. on the move. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.